Well, I'm very happy to be in an amazing artist studio where there's a collective of artists producing the most incredible work hidden away in the heart of Aberystwyth. And I'm here with Peter Stevenson, who also has, you know, the world is Peter's studio, but <laughs> he also comes here to, to work as well. So thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me, Peter. And I particularly wanted to talk to you because with regard to the Mabinogion, you're doing something that no one else is doing. So you've already curated. I think that's probably the right word, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I I think I like the word curated. I'm <laughs> okay, never quite sure. <laughs> Organised seems a are. bit simpler. To stunning festivals centred around the Mabinogi. Um, the four branches followed by the fifth branch <laughs> with the yet as undiscovered fifth branch. So I was just wondering if you could tell me a little bit of what draw you to the Mabinogi as material. As, as material? I, 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 no, you can answer the question you wanted me to ask you. It's fine. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I go back right to childhood, and, you know, an early Please passion do. for stories, but that would probably take far too long. I mean, I was telling stories, illustrating stories from a very, very young age. And right. I mean, really very young. My mum used to keep little books that I'd illustrated of fairy tales and folk tales. Wow. And it was probably five or six. So, it, it, I mean, that side of it really does go back a long way. Sitting beneath tables in people's kitchens on Penthine. Always artists. My mum uh. knew a lot of artists. And I would go and sit underneath the tables and draw underneath the tables while the artists would be painting and talking. So I was listening and absorbing all the time and always seeing that connection between visual art and story. Do you have any of those early pictures, by the way? I think I've got one. Yeah, and I don't know how... Oh, God, it's weird. It's called... Um, I haven't got a fairy tale one, but I've got one that I must have written, and it's called Robbie and the Dog on Dogs. I think it's about... <laughs> A pop band that were dogs. It's very strange, but I, I remember doing loads and loads of them. And I've got the um, I've got the cupboard, uh, a drawer that pushed underneath the table, and it's about a foot square. And my mum must have kept it because when when she died, I found this drawer up in the attic, and it's got one of my drawings underneath in crayon. So they're probably the, the earliest drawings. So it goes back that that length of time listening to those old storytellers who used to come round and tell tales to my dad and you know trying to understand what was literally sitting halfway up the stairs when I was told to go to bed and then listening to these old boys talking away and my mum making food for them and sometimes they went on all night because my dad kind of ran a early informal lending library he had loads of books and um, and there was a farmer called Carradog Jones. I loved Carradog. He, he taught me loads and loads of things. But he used to come round of an evening, and I'm not sure whether my dad knew he was going to come, but he would turn up, bringing the books he'd borrowed the previous week, and he would return them, and he and my dad would sit and talk about them and tell stories, and then he'd go off with another set of books. And it, it was kind of like that. There would always all these people gather around the gather around the fireside, and that was a really early introduction to the concept of storytelling. The, and and chedlaya, that, that the different meanings of that word, that, not just myths and legends, yes. which it's now become. What what it used to be, um, just conversation and gossip and sitting around. It sounds very corny, sitting around the fireside. It wasn't always that. It was out walking. Um, Karadog showed me how to catch an adder because there was loads of adders on the common ground, common land at the back of the house. So 
he had a stick with a V shape on the end, puff it over the back of the adder's head, pick it up with his thumb on the back, and then toss it into the heather. All the other farmers killed them, but not him. He kind of, well, he threw them into the heather, but they were still alive. And he, he taught me a kind of respect as well for for the animals too, which other for other people there weren't weren't doing. They would just kill anything if it was in the way. It was that is that kind of upbringing. It sounds quite romantic now, and it wasn't all like that, of course. But but it instilled me with something that love of story and how that's completely entwined with imagery. Now that is fascinating mm. um, because it seems that you're talking about stories within a much wider weave of community and landscape and images and so on. I'd really love you to talk more about particularly the image connection and the work you've done presenting Mabinogi material. Yeah, well, I've always seen... I, I'm one of these people who's very visual. I, I only kind of realised this a bit, a bit later on in life. I didn't quite understand it to begin with. I see pictures and when I tell a story, I can see an image now. I can see that place I've just been talking about. So I'm there right now and I can paint it while I was here. And I often do paint while I'm telling a story. I draw while I'm telling a story. Uh, and I do see that I'm not someone who learns very easily through words, even though words are my living or part of my living. But there are images in there which I can describe. Uh, and I've got enough vocabulary to describe those pictures. And that's why I can... Sometimes I can get up and just start talking and one picture leads to the next one. So they're immediately linked, those two things. For somebody who perceives visually, and not everybody does, of course. Um, you know, some people, don't, they're, they're much more aural or um, some people through, it's through smell. And, and obviously many are, they can memorise words. You know, we were talking earlier about kind of reading backwards and mm. that, that kind of thing. Some people have that kind of memory. I don't. I have to see visually. So immediately, in order to tell a story, I need, I need a visual. And when I tell stories, the last 20 odd years or more, I've painted the characters in the stories before I tell them. Mm. So it's a really helpful mnemonic for me. I've got then not just a memory, I've got the memory of the picture that I've painted, and I'll often show the picture even while I'm telling a story, or you know the crankies that I use now, or projected images, or just drawing while I'm actually telling the story. So it's absolutely connected. I couldn't do one without the other. Um, really, I'm an illustrator, so yeah. I need the fairy tales, I need the folk tales to illustrate as well when I make a book. So to me, the making of a book, the sitting of an image alongside words is precisely the same methodology as creating an image in the head when you're telling a story. They are really are that linked. And the creative process that leads me to making a book and telling a story is precisely the same. I mean, it varies, you know, it shifts. Sometimes you, you start with the image, sometimes you start with the story, and then they, they kind of, it goes from one to the other, uh, and the, one of the most recent books I did, I really did start with the images. The pictures were all there first. And I didn't write the story down till I'd painted all the characters from the pictures. And then when I came to make the book, I put the pictures back in. So, oh. But the pictures came first. They're just little sketches, nothing more. But it was it's the one and only time I think I've ever I've done that. Mm. I find it really interesting looking at it now because it's not like an illustrated book. It's... Um, you know, it, knowing the stories but never having written them down, making the pictures just for myself, 
for when I tell the tale. I found that really useful before I wrote, started writing the tales down and then putting the pictures back in. It's not the kind of process that you would, anybody working in book publishing would tell you to do. <laughs> you know, they, they like to produce their words first and then they pass it out to the illustrator and it's all very organised. But to me, it's totally linked. And so when, when I started organising the story festivals, each festival was actually based around an art exhibition uh, through my interest and links with the illustrators, particularly in this area, because we're quite a tight community. We all know each other. Um, so I would put together the very first one I put together. and Actually, no, it wasn't the first, sorry, but the second one. I put together an, an exhibition of very, very local folk tales. So this is Chwedlaia in that old meaning of the word, gossip, anecdote, Stories about somebody who lived 100 years ago, somebody who lives just down the road now. That kind of thing, the simplest, basic folk tales. I didn't really tell the storytellers who came then to the festival that that's what this was about. They came to tell their stories and they could look at the exhibition. And then the next one was more focused on folk tales. Uh, then the third one was more about fairy tales, the going this. And then the, I think the fourth one then, I think, we're getting towards myths and legends, and that led to the Mabinon. Because right. where else do you go in? All, all these were based around Welsh stories, of course. Yes. Uh, so you, you're kind of leading that your way up from these basic tales that I heard around the fireside all those years ago, up to the great epic stories that we have that you know so well, which was the Mabinogi. And, and then came that idea of, well, I'd never come across it being told in one you know, in one day, which I figured it could be. Uh, and then, but then, I think we had all these conversations about, well, could one person tell the whole of the Mabinogian? I mean, I now know you could, and you can do that now. But back back then, a few years ago, I was scratching my head and thinking, well, could, was that possible? Could anybody do it? And I think a few of us were thinking the same thing. So we brought six, so six storytellers, as you know, came in and told the Mabinogian. Um, told the uh, Pedel Kanka Mabadoki rather. Uh, and it took, what, about nine, ten hours, I think. But the link with imagery was that I asked Maria Hayes to come along. Uh, and, you know, you work with Maria. And, you know, she's completely unique in that she can, she has this ability to kind of go into a bubble. She sets up all her equipment and she will draw live. And, you know, that's hard enough. For any illustrator to draw live because people look over your shoulder. Well, Maria somehow she will project the image, and we did throughout the telling of the Mabinogi behind the storyteller. So the poor old storyteller couldn't really see what was going on unless you could see her drawing. So you could see her mind and her pen working as the stories were being told. So the imagery was was there for those people in the audience who can't see pictures and there are people like that they could see Maria's interpretation you had myself and Valerianne Leblonde who's the most recent illustrator of the Mabinogi we were there as well hidden in a corner not wanting our work seen <laughs> poor Maria puts her life on the line you know with this work being seen live it was very interesting because I remember as an audience member feeling before it started I might be a bit distracted by these images mm. or they might interfere with the images I have in my head or my focus might be torn 
uh, or split between the stage and the screen because it was quite a bit higher than, mm. than the stage. But it wasn't at all. The two things came together perfectly. Yeah. Um, and in a way, it, they didn't match, but it was actually the mismatch that was interesting. It, exactly, yeah. It's one person's one person's view. And Maria's drawing is such that it stimulates the imagination. She draws in a way that doesn't define what the storyteller is saying. She has this remarkable ability to, like, it's, it's beyond sketching. It is proper, real illustration, real drawing, real fine art, but it stimulates the mind. She gives you just enough information. It's like using a silhouette. If you use silhouette or shadow puppetry, that doesn't take away, it still leaves a lot to the imagination for you to make up your own characters. Maria's drawing works, I think, the same way. She gives you just enough, but there's plenty of scope there for you to then create your own characters based around her drawings, if you want, or you create your own. She's not dominating your idea of what you think the characters in the landscape look like. And that's why I think her drawings work so well. I draw in silhouette for the same reasons, because I don't want to, I don't want to inflict my perception of the characters in the stories and the landscape on other people just to give them enough information um, and I thought it worked really really well it I think did. you're quite right it certainly didn't distract no nobody I talked to most people afterwards nobody said they were distracted by it Peter I just want to ask you one last thing about the Mabinog because we've only got five minutes and it's about the actual stories the characters and the events in the Mabinogion, which are so strange often um, and not linked together in what we would normally regard as a coherent narrative. How, how does that, how do you and the material get on? Uh, I, it makes complete sense to me. That's the, <laughs> uh, and, and I say that to people. I, I mean, it is, there, there is a kind of, there is a narrative there, you know, there, mm. it, it, you could say it's the great epic tales of a, of a people, you, you know, you, it's like chapters of, through our history, you know, there's, there's war in there, there's, um, you know, human relationships, there's marriage, there's all the big things that affect us. So you, it can easily be, be perceived just in that way. And in that sense, it's, it is relatively chronological in a very fairy tale kind of way. But of course, Folk tales and fairy tales are not chronological in the way that maybe a written narrative or a piece of creating writing would be. They never are. And it's because, I'm certain that's because of the concept of oral storytelling. When we tell a tale, we're remembering back to where the story came from. We might have read it, it might have been told to us. We remember it imperfectly, we're adding in all our own ideas and all our own thoughts. And this, I, I, when we're using our memory to remember something before we tell the story, our memory is of everything that's happened in our lives. It's all there. Now, we could be remembering a told tale, which might not have been told correctly as the teller had told it to us. But we might be remembering elements from a dream. We might be remembering elements of, that we've seen, but not remembered properly. You know, if two people witness an event, they'll both report it differently. That's why we have courts of law, so that they can get they can arrive at a centre ground. So the second we tell a tale, we're pulling on all these things, and in memory, 
dream and real event become exactly the same thing in memory. There's no distinction between them. So it's, people say, is that a true tale? Well, you know, it's true in the sense that I remember it that way. Uh, but I might be remembering a dream. I might not even be remembering my own memory. It might be somebody else's that they told to me. I've been in that position myself. I can't remember now whether something happened to me or not. That's quite mm. disturbing. I think that, that's age catching <laughs> up with me. But I love that idea that it, it is, that in memory, of course, and, and in dream, nothing is chronological in the way that we perceive it. We leap from one thing to another constantly. It's like, it, it's really interesting being around people suffering from dementia because mm. you get the feeling the same thing is happening. They're leaping in and out of time. And they're jumping through time all the you know, they might be back in the 1960s, it might be in the 70s, it might be before they were married, then suddenly it's after they're married. You're not quite sure quite what's going on. And it adds that sense of mystery and mystique and mythology to it, to the story. And that, to me, is what's happening when we tell a tale, both in the process of telling, but also when you look at them. That seems to me, it's like walking through a dream, walking through a, somebody remembering a dream, which is can be a reality as well. And that's why, I, you know, when you tell the stories, I really like the fact that you keep strongly to that narrative that's, that's there. But because it's not, so this happened, then that, then that, then that. There's all these little alleyways and side branches going off that... The story as written never follows. I have something of a suspicion that maybe when those stories were told, that the teller probably had the ability to go off down one of those branches. But, you know, we've maybe lost that now because it's set in words. But I'm sure as a piece of oral telling, you could, if you wanted, have gone down one of those blind alleys or maybe it was an alley that opened up to more and then you could find your way back to the main story, that kind of way. So it, it allowed the storyteller to be much more in control of their own art form. They could follow something in a moment instead of being, as we are now, guided by the words as they've been written. That is fascinating. I think you're probably right about that, Peter. And that actually links in really nicely with some of the work that Shona Lee's doing on the Drutzkia Jewish tradition, which is pretty much that. So the stories are threads in a very complex texture and it twists and turns and it goes depending on which way the audience and the uh, and the performer want it to go I, I think that's absolutely true and i think that's true of other traditions as well i mean shona's work is mm. really fascinating i'm quite convinced that was the case with the romany stories in wales as well the more i've looked at those and i've been gone through all the ones that we've got and i've talked to romany people now I think the same thing was happening there. You get these same elements that keep cropping up in the stories. They're all, it feels like they're all part of that bigger story, that big tree um, that's coming out of the ground and there's all these little branches and each story is one of these branches and hence, you know, we have the branches of the Mabinogi. Indeed. <laughs> that's Indeed. what they are. Peter, thank you so much. That's an absolutely fascinating conversation. I know that people are going to enjoy it. Thank you. Oh, pleasure. Thank you.